Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Another episode of Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Herman Lopez, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, Education August continues. We're going to talk this week about learning loss during the pandemic, uh, what we know about it, some of the controversies about it. There's a turn of phrase that I don't know if everybody is familiar with, but it sort of originates from a totally separate conversation, which is that researchers used to argue about summer vacation and what happens there. And there was a theory, which uh, my read of the evidence is this theory is not true, but is that summer learning loss was responsible for a large fraction of the achievement gap between rich and poor students. The theory was that parents of means would sort of enroll their kids in highly enriching summer activities, whereas lower-income parents would, you know, have them just out playing with other kids or, you know, latchkey watching television kind of stuff, and that this was an important driver of the gap. I've written about this a few times over the years, and I think the the newest research, which is um, well captured in Education Next piece, is that this does not actually drive a lot of achievement gaps, but the finding on that is mostly that summer learning loss afflicts high-income and low-income children alike. So it's interesting because like the education community for a while was like so narrowly focused on achievement gap stuff that a lot of this got headlined as like summer learning loss is fake. But like what it actually showed is that summer learning loss is very real. And, you know, so this it's like three months out of school in the summer. Kids will sort of fall back about one month in uh, math, especially. Kids do some reading over the summer, even if they're not in school. But people don't normally do like math problems just for fun. And this led me to become very worried about school closures because, you know, doing Zoom school is not like the same as summer vacation. But I think in reality, it's maybe not as unlike simply not being in school as one might hope. 
And, you know, my read, I think Herman is uh, more up to speed on this than I am, is that what we know from the school closure experience is that, yeah, like students backslid on average a really large amount when schools weren't open. Yeah, there was a recent McKinsey report that came out on this, and it found that elementary school students, they were the only ones that they had data for based on standardized tests, fell on average five months behind in math and four months behind in reading. So that's like nearly half a year. And also that that was on average all kids. For minority and poor kids, the outcomes were even worse. So, I mean, poor kids in, in one of these categories fell behind seven months. Like, we're talking... A majority of a school year at that point. That's really bad. And I was first alerted to all of this because of a Dutch study that also came out last year that found very early on in the pandemic, the Netherlands shut down for school for eight weeks. And researchers found that there was eight weeks of learning loss, which to Matt's point kind of suggests that this was like not being at school at all, maybe even worse in some way. And also the outcomes were worse for poor kids. And I found that especially alarming because the Netherlands has a much stronger social safety net in general than the U.S. It also did a bunch of things to make sure that kids could get online. It has better access to broadband internet. It gave people technology like computers, tablets, that sort of stuff. And still they saw eight weeks of school closures where they went to virtual learning and eight weeks of learning loss. That to me was just really alarming. And, and we've seen that again and again from this McKinsey report down to like some of uh, education organizations doing their own studies. It's, it's just really alarming how deep this level of learning loss actually is. So I think that when we talk about the question of learning loss, there is kind of a big baseline question going on here, which like speaks very directly to the questions of equity and achievement gaps that Matt was talking about earlier, which is to what extent are we measuring where kids were at the beginning of the pandemic versus what we expect children of a certain age group to be able to do? Because there are definitely a lot of respects in which, you know, you have X number of children reading below grade level already. So at this point, now that we're a year and a half into the virtual schooling experiment, nearly, can we really say that, say, an eighth grader right now has experienced X amount of learning loss compared to where they were as a sixth grader? Or are we really saying that where we expect an eighth grader to be and where we expect like these, eighth, you know, like maybe we can control somewhat for where we expect these eighth graders to be is just way ahead of where they actually are? Yeah, generally, the studies look at like a comparative cohort. So like, if I'm an eighth grader going into eighth grade, this is where I would expect my peers to be. And like, that's generally how they're measuring this. I mean, it might be that somebody is like learning at a seventh grade or sixth grade level, essentially, when they're going into eighth grade. But generally, it's like, what should you be at this point based on like the eighth graders of 2019 or 2018 and so forth? I think that's an important distinction because maybe you can catch these people up in some way, like these students, you can catch them up in, in a way, which is maybe not as true for someone who's like stuck at like elementary school reading level because they have other things going on in their lives that are even bigger than just the having to do virtual learning for a year or so. Still, it's a pretty bad outcome. And here's what really worries me about this is that, you know, if you look at some of the reporting on this question and, and Dana Goldstein, who's been on the weeds, has done a couple stories about this for, for The New York Times, is that, you know, it's obviously sort of embarrassing 
for teachers unions who pushed for virtual learning to see that it was quite damaging to children. That being said, you know, I don't know. We did a lot of stuff in the pandemic for what people thought were public health reasons that had negative consequences. I mean, you know, restaurants were closed for a long time in different parts of the country. And, you know, I think like responsible political leaders who support those restaurant closures still own up to the fact that it was obviously bad for the restaurant owners to keep the restaurants closed and that they therefore have some kind of an obligation to come up with something to deal with it. And what I think has been unfortunate about some of the teacher pushback is that there's this idea that it is wrong or like stigmatizing to try to measure the learning loss. And there there are quotes scattered throughout these pieces where usually local union officials will say that like, you know, children have been learning about their families and their culture and their, you know, grief and we we life is a learning pageant. Um, and like that's all true in some sense, right? Like it's not like children did literally nothing during a year without school, but we want people to learn how to read and write and do basic math. And I think we have kind of like an overlapping consensus of reasons why we should want children to do that, right? There's like a narrow, neoliberal, economics-y kind of reason why people need those skills. But there's also like, you know, hippie learning for its own sake. Like people need to be able to read books. Uh, you could think in terms of, you know, are people going to be able to organize politically and fight for their rights if they can't communicate, right? If they can't assess mathematically what's going on. It's just like, it's important. Information literacy and misinformation, for example. You know, not that that's relevant in a pandemic at all. Yeah. Just to say, like, we really shouldn't take a concrete policy dispute about, like, what should have been happening in elementary schools last spring, and then, like, fling it out into these, like, galaxy brain takes where it doesn't matter if kids can read or not. And as Herman was saying, you know, we probably could be doing things to help people catch up, but we would need to acknowledge that learning loss happened, attempt to measure it, say that it's bad... <laughs> And, like, we are now going to do some some catch-ups. And, you know, to, to their credit, I mean, the American Rescue Plan has money for this. I know in DCPS, there's a lot of kids who've been in summer school this summer, like, more than normally are, to try to sort of catch up. But it has also been somewhat stigmatized as a subject of conversation. And we don't quite see the same, like, shoulder-to-the-wheel effort behind it as I think we've had, right? I mean, there's been, like, everybody sort of, like, worried about the restaurant sector, right? And, like, what's going to happen? And who's going to come back? And now can we hire enough workers? And we haven't had sustained policy focus that just, like, acknowledges that it was, whether it was right or wrong, it had downsides to have kids out of school for this long, and we need to start doing something about it. You know, and I'm really worried that, like, we're just not going to, and that some jurisdictions continue to seem like a little bit wobbly on even schooling in the fall. Right. I mean, even to the point of it's not super clear how many parents are even aware that there is substantial empirical evidence that their kids didn't learn as much in the last year. I mean, I think that on the one hand, there definitely are a lot of parents who have felt frustrated with the entire like virtual schooling experiment and have 
probably drawn their own conclusions as to how much their kids learned or didn't. But there are also parents whose sense of what their kids are learning comes mostly from like report cards and comments from teachers. And when teachers are themselves being pulled in 800 different directions and have already themselves assumed that virtual school isn't going to be as effective as in-person learning is, report cards and teacher assessments might not reflect the actual, you know, because they do, they are seen as an individual referendum on the student. So this kind of collective problem where it's not that any student was bad at Zoom school. It's that Zoom school was bad for kids. It's not even clear that parents coming into this school year when there are such live debates over reopening even understand either retrospectively that their kids aren't now where they should be or prospectively that there's variation in how much they can expect to learn in the coming year depending on whether they're able to be in school together or whether the epidemiological conditions make that impractical. Well, and also, you know, I, I think it, it should be it should be flagged here that there's been a sort of a um, political bug in analysis of the situation. I remember last spring or early summer, I was speaking to uh, Roy Romer, who was a former governor of Colorado, former superintendent of schools in L.A., and he was very worried about school closures based on his experience from Los Angeles when they had an overcrowding problem and, you know, just like physical school buildings and had to sort of do kids in shifts. You know, when he was saying what I think is accurate, which is that virtual schooling is going to be hardest on lower income parents, that, you know, more affluent families, when the grownups are working remotely, when they're doing white collar Zoom work that has schedule flexibility, they can sort of supervise this Zoom school much more effectively than service sector workers who are going in person. And a kind of mini narrative started to come around that like, okay, this was really disadvantaging, you know, urban students of color, et cetera, et cetera. The surveys, though, show pretty clearly that if you look, leaving aside what's happening in the red states, that if you look at New York, California, et cetera, other blue states, that it is the white collar professionals who were most upset by the schools being closed. And it was the working class parents who were most favorable to remote learning. So, you know, you sort of got into a, a, a representational issue where, like, my view is that Governor Romer was correct, and this was especially harmful to blue-collar workers and, and their kids, but, like, that is not the subjective politics of it. And I think there have been a lot of other changes in American politics and society happening over the past couple of years, and it has become much less sort of accepted to sort of do a hard foot stomp and be like, the issue here is that these parents are incorrect and they are misjudging what is good for their children. And we need the government to step in with like a strong hand and tell them you are wrong. Your kids need to go back to in-person learning. And I think there are a lot of good reasons why people have become leerier of reaching those kind of conclusions. But the data really does seem to support that conclusion. You know, like, it's tough. Like, I don't think we should leap to the idea that people misjudge what's most important for their kids or what's best for them. Uh, but we do have a lot of 
studies of this and like it really does and it it is also common sense like it is much harder to supervise your child's zoom school if you yourself are working in person outside of the house like i don't know like it's almost axiomatic and it's tough like unless you can have sort of credible civic leaders and politicians step in because there just is an element of paternalism to the education system like it's not an optional public service the idea is that like we need to make kids go for their own good i think one thing i would add to this is that I don't think it's even just that parents aren't getting this message. It's that in some cases they're getting the opposite message because school districts have actively encouraged teachers over the past year and a half to go easier on kids. And you've seen this in report cards. I actually saw a study the other day that was like it was for the university setting and it found that grades actually went up during the pandemic. But once you started controlling for like leniency and at the instructor level, it found that, no, that's actually not true. And people who did in, stuck to in-person, managed to stick to in-person, were still doing better. So I think this is just a huge part of the problem where, on one hand, the teachers' unions are, by and large, downplaying the idea of learning loss. And at the same time, the like actual evidence parents get, these report cards, are basically inflated grades because school districts actively told the teachers to go easy on the kids. This is, again, something you see in in the surveys. I think it was in the McKinsey report. It was like 14% of parents said their child had not fallen significantly behind over the past year and a half, which when we're talking about nearly half a year of learning loss, that's statistically impossible, right? Like most kids fell behind in some way. But I think the problem here is parents, a lot of parents just did not see that their kids actually did fall behind. And to the extent they got mad at the loss of in-person schooling, it was more about personal things. Like obviously it's a pain to have to try to juggle a job and a child while staying at home. I think that's what upset a lot of parents and led to a lot of the protests. But I don't know if the learning loss message has really sunk in for a lot of these parents. And it's a huge problem for acknowledging the problem. But it's also a huge problem for like actually getting these parents riled up to push for in-person schooling and keep in-person schooling, I think, in the coming months. Right. This is what is so frustrating to me is we've left all the way to the assumption of the preferences of parents are unchangeable but wrong (laughs) you know and therefore the question is do we defer to their wishes or do we step in and tell them that their preferences don't matter we haven't seen what an informed conversation about the cost benefit of school reopening even looks like because there have been such strong incentives to go easy on individual student achievement and the reasonable conclusion to be drawn from that is that virtual schooling has actually been better for your kid and so There's that frustration that we're not even having the conversation because even having the conversation would imply some sort of individualized failure. And then there's the flip side, which is there is an argument that virtual schooling has been better for some kids or better for my kid or whatever. But there are also some concrete arguments about the physical and health safety of school buildings, which is more likely to be a problem in lower income school districts where they don't necessarily have the money to have state of the art, you know, deep cleaning and ventilation and all of that. And what that says isn't just, you know, that this is obviously like intertwined with the pandemic in inextricable ways or that the communities that have been most disproportionately harmed by the pandemic are also those that are harmed by learning loss. But that the school reopening debate has kind of turned into a referendum on do you have implicit trust in your school district? 
And in communities where that relationship was frayed or broken already, there is, I think, a higher barrier for reasons that have very little to do with individual learning outcomes to like physically entrust your child to somebody else for several hours a day. And you know, I think both of those kind of have the same root, right, that we can't talk about a school not living up to expectations without it seeming like it's the fault of the student or the fault of the community. In our Weeds Time Machine episode on No Child Left Behind, this kind of came up that even a framework that was designed to not make parents feel that their school was being blamed ended up turning into a feeling of they're saying that we're not worth it. They're saying that our community is like not supporting students well enough. So it does seem that the need here is to have kind of an honest and I say post pandemic, not to say that we are over the pandemic, but to say that this is kind of an aftermath thing that needs to happen is an honest reckoning about even those of us who survived have lost a bunch of stuff and some of it we need to work really hard to get back. And that doesn't mean we've been screwing up for the last year and a half. Okay, let's take a break. And then I want to talk about some of the public health aspects of this, because as Dara was saying, obviously, that motivates a lot of the anxieties here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. To me personally, as a parent, the thing that was most frustrating last fall in Washington, D.C., but this was true in, in many other jurisdictions, is that schools were in virtual only mode, presumably because of the pandemic, but restaurants were open. 
right? And schools, when DC schools eventually went halfway open, what happened was, was that the kids and the teachers all had to wear masks all day. They got HEPA filters put into every room in the school. They shifted as much activity outdoors as sort of possible, which is, you know, not everything you can do. But it's a striking contrast to a restaurant where like you can't eat food while wearing a mask. And the social value of kids getting education seems higher than the social value of, you know, people getting lunch. And public health-wise, it's not just children were at lower risk of the disease, children transmitted less, but also the mask stuff is, like, feasible in an education context and not in a dining context. So it always seemed like you were in this spiral of despair in the kind of conversation around it where it was strange. It was the burden of public health adjustment was being placed on the clients of the school system. And then some of those clients were being spooked by the teachers into regarding it as unsafe. The subjective perception of lack of safety was then being used as a justification for keeping the schools closed. But there was no like good faith social effort to actually rank activities in order of their public health risks. And to me, I feel like a lot of the participants in the public health discourse do not appreciate the extent to which that priority ordering in the more restrictive jurisdictions alienated a lot of people politically, sociologically, et cetera, from the anti-COVID move. The like open everything up politics has its failures, I think, of cost-benefit analysis, but it reflected a like coherent and principled worldview in a way that wear a mask outside, schools are closed, bars and restaurants are open, just like really didn't. And nobody has ever, like, accounted for, like, like what were we doing? Like, what, what was the point of that? And what has the public health benefit been that was commensurate to this learning loss? I mean, last year, when, when a lot of this was going on, I remember writing an article. I think it was titled, like, Reopen the Schools, Close the Bars. Like, that was the entire headline. Unfortunately, nobody listened to me. But it was essentially this point is, like, asked a bunch of experts and I was like, what would you rather close, a restaurant or a school? And every one of them was like, well, of course, the restaurant. But you just did not see this reflected in policy at all. Obviously, there are like political reasons, economic reasons that that might have happened, like schools cost money to run, bars make a city, tax revenue, that kind of thing. I think it's just worth stepping back here and like considering what virtual learning was supposed to do for public health in the first place. Like we went into COVID essentially thinking it would work like the flu, where it might not get a bunch of kids sick and they would die necessarily, but they would at least spread it a lot. And what we've seen is that that's just not what's happening with COVID. We don't even really truly understand why. Not only are kids not getting very sick, but they don't even seem to spread it anywhere near to the level as adults do, older people do. And when you just think about that, the implications then is like you could imagine a world where we have a lot of kids getting sick. We have kids spreading COVID and then maybe some learning loss is worth it, right? Nobody wants hundreds of thousands of deaths, especially of their children happening. And like maybe 
taking a year off school at that point is worth it. But that's not what we've seen at all. We've seen this learning loss on top of study after study showing that there was really no public health benefit to closing down schools and that schools could have been opened back safely if there was masking, if there was better ventilation, if there was some level of social distancing. And that's, I think, what makes this so bad is that on top of the learning loss data we've seen, it's just been for what? Like a very marginal public health gain at best. And in the end, now now we have to do all this work to catch kids up, and we're not even fully acknowledging the problem as it stands. Right. I mean, I think that the issue with this happening, kind of the confluence of Education August with a Delta August, is that parents are extremely risk intolerant of their children as a general like statement. And we're now at a point of extremely high uncertainty about the casual cost benefit analysis of COVID all over again in a way that harkens back to kind of 18 months ago somewhat. And so it, there's going to be an understandable resistance to saying, well, now you should definitely put your kids back in school because we have a year and a half of data saying that they're unlikely to get terribly sick and they're unlikely to transmit the disease to people who will get terribly sick. When in so many other realms, we're telling people everything you think you know about COVID is wrong. Delta is more transmissible. So I do think that we're going to just kind of have an unfortunate gap there. But I think that the kind of fundamental underlying truth about low risk tolerance is true, right? I do think that a lot of parents, if you offered them at the outset, even if fully informed, you know, your child has an X percentage risk of getting terribly sick and dying, you know, and on the flip side, they're going to have some learning loss in a non-quantified sense. Most parents would take the learning loss because at least their kid is, you know, there's there is a certain amount of just any dead child is a policy failure going on in policymaking around children in particular that is really hard to fully express. And that does mean that maybe in the aggregate, you know, you can't say that like one dead child is worth a nation of kids with months of learning loss. The one thing I would push back on, though, is that even with Delta, we have seen some data already, like in terms of like how kids get infected. And we've seen like, look, masking works, vaccination uh, works for the severe outcomes and all that. And it's just to say, like, we could talk about this more, but we're not even like mandating vaccines in these school districts, even though we've mandated vaccines for all sorts of other diseases in the past. So it is it's just to say that, like, I agree, like parents are risk adverse. And I think it's totally justified. Nobody wants their kid to get sick. But at the same time, like we could be doing things to make schools as safe as possible and to make sure we stick to in-person schooling. And we're not even really doing that. And and that just adds to like my anxiety about all of this is like that we're not really taking this problem seriously. There still seems to be a widespread assumption that, you know, virtual schooling is fine, that it can maybe produce equal, if not better outcomes, which obviously we have not seen in reality. But that was a hope going into all of this. And even though it hasn't held up, I think a lot of people are still clinging on to that belief. And I mean, I, I find it very, you know, so like in D.C., we're, we're supposed to have the schools open in like two weeks, which is good. You know, we are on track. Uh, they are doing mask mandates, which I think is appropriate. Given Delta, I think the anti-mask posturing coming out of Republican governors is insane. But we're not mandating vaccination for the teachers and the adult staff and the children who are over the age of 12, which, I mean, again, they're not mandating that in Florida either. 
But like in Florida, they're taking the view that the pandemic isn't a big deal. And so you're not mandating vaccines because you're not doing anything. Like in D.C., the official position of the government remains that the pandemic is a big deal. So as long as that's the case, like there will be when schools reopen, given everything we know about Delta's transmissibility, there will be Delta cases in the schools, right? Some of those cases will be among adults. Um, Some of those adults will have severe outcomes. A lot of those cases will be in little kids who overwhelmingly won't have severe outcomes. But you're talking about thousands of children. So, you know, one of them might end up in the hospital. And that's bad. I'm not sure how psychologically robust we are as a community to children being in the hospital. But we are not, in fact, taking maximum steps to protect them from that outcome. We're instead equivocating on, like, whether these things will will go forward. And the opposition to vaccine mandates is coming from the same labor unions that last year, we're like, oh, no, it's too dangerous to have the schools be open, right? And it's a real, it's been like a real political failure, a real failure to rise to the occasion, you know, of like saying, our work is incredibly important and has to be done. And therefore, we need X, Y, and Z to do it as safely as possible in difficult circumstances. Instead, it's a lot of it's like opposition to coercing the minority of union members who don't want to be vaccinated and jeopardizing critical public services while invoking the idea that maybe the public services aren't so important at all or that it's like whiny and unworthy of parents to want the schools to be open. And like it's still it's still happening on that level. Like it is crazy to me that like you have jurisdictions where the political consensus is like the pandemic is really bad and that they routinely require vaccines for people to go to school. Like schools are high disease spread environments. Like that's why originally last spring when we didn't know about children versus the elderly, et cetera, an early move is like, okay, send the kids home from school because schools are reservoirs of of illness, which is why you need measles, you need Tdap, you need whatever rubella is, you need a vaccine against that. Like, there's this whole long-ass list. And, like, we have vaccines that can work for the older children, the adults, the staff. The American Association of Pediatrics says that the FDA should approve the vaccine for younger kids. But it's like, we need to use the tools we have. I mean, I don't think that the politics of vaccine mandates for teachers are set. And I, I think that I think this for a couple of reasons. One, just because like as we go into the school year, I think that there's probably a, a mobilizable population both among teachers who are pro-vaccination and among parents uh, that hadn't really been focusing on this and had more been thinking about just kind of the broader reopening and are now like, wait, we're not even mandating vaccines. But I also think that there are a couple of conversations going on. First of all, there is an internal, you know, the kind of instinctual assumption that unions were expressing in opposing vaccine mandates was this is an assertion of employer control over the workforce and we are kind of honor bound to oppose assertions of employer control over the workforce. But there have also been voices within those unions and within the broader labor movement saying this is a workplace safety issue. Not all of your members can get vaccinated. Some of your members are at higher risk than others. 
it is not uncommon for unions to say we are going to take the hit on behalf of some of our members to benefit others of our members. And so this is a perfectly consistent stance for the union to take. At the same time, as opposition to vaccine mandates has become a Republican policy, the traditionally Democratic constituency of teachers unions has, you know, been in more of an uncomfortable position. And so, you know, you have seen the American Federation of Teachers coming out in favor of vaccine mandates. I think that we are going to kind of continue to see the politics shifting towards that. I guess the good thing about culture wars is that it gives people who didn't have strong opinions on an issue a heuristic to have strong opinions on it, which obviously is like not a good thing in the broad analysis. But if you support vaccine mandates, I think that the politics of this are going to end up working out in your favor. I think what worries me, though, is that a lot of this movement seems to be happening as the school year is like weeks away instead of a couple months ago when we knew we had vaccines and we knew that this would be a problem eventually. And that's like, it's it's a practical problem because some states have already passed laws that are essentially not allowing school districts to impose vaccine mandates. So, like, even if unions are speaking out now, it would have been nice if they were speaking out a few months ago when states were pushing these laws through. Like, I don't know. I, I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to listen to teachers unions much. He, he doesn't care what they have to say necessarily, but it would maybe make it harder for the legislature to pass it, at least in more purple states. You would see that kind of movement maybe. And like schools are taking steps to alleviate learning loss now. They're doing things like extending the school year. They're trying to track the like high risk students. They're trying to like do more individualized learning and tutoring. And what what seems to me is that like that's all great. We should all be doing that to try to catch kids up. But it seems like we're not doing everything in our power to prevent more learning loss by preventing the possibility that like we let these schools get overwhelmed by COVID cases, particularly the teachers. And then we have to shut down again. And then there's more learning loss. Like we're doing a lot to like make up for the last year. I think the American Rescue Plan money has helped in this regard. But we also need to take the prevention side of this a bit more seriously, I think. Can you actually talk a little bit more about what the mitigation side of it looks like? Like what is being done and what can be done to, you know, get people back on track in an accelerated fashion? So I think based on what I've seen school districts and like the different education experts talk about, it's usually things that will like target the kids that most likely face the highest levels of learning loss. Ideally, schools would sit down with basically every kid and do an individualized plan to see what they forgot last year. Obviously, resource-wise, that's impossible. Like some of these schools don't have enough resources to properly teach 20 kids at a time, much less one at a time. So I think the idea is like, well, we can at least do some targeting like find which kids were our highest risk and just encourage parents to like actually get their kids back in person. Like that's the, one of the biggest things here is a lot of parents are still really resistant to like sending their kids back to in-person schooling, especially with all the Delta stuff going around. So now like principals are like calling families, going to their houses, like trying to encourage them to like, please just send your kid in person and then trying to do some work there. I think beyond that, like the, the general thing is just like extending the school year, doing more summer schooling stuff, hopefully making summer schools better because summer schools in general are not very good in the U.S. And one of the problems here is honestly that we don't really know what works to catch kids up. And this is going to be like a giant experiment for figuring that out. So it'll be good for future reference, like maybe that we'll figure out some stuff works here and some stuff doesn't. And we can use that in, in future situations like this. Although hopefully we don't have future situations like this. Essentially, it's like a, a scattershot approach because we're, we're learning still what, what could work here. 
I think, you know, we, we also should worry about conceptual backsliding on some some things, you know, enduring institutional learning loss. Um, So like a lot of states, I think, for understandable reasons, sort of suspended a lot of like assessment and, and other things like that last year during the emergency. But Oregon's governor yesterday signed a law creating a sort of extension, like a five-year extension of suspending the Oregon graduation requirement that high school students demonstrate proficiency in reading and math, which is not really a pandemic measure at all. It, It extends five years into the future. It reflects the fact that they're, you know, they're just like always controversies about assessments and things like that. And the pandemic was used as a sort of political wedge to get this stuff temporarily suspended and now made into a larger suspension. And now obviously the proponents of this, you know, will say like this is progress, right? We're moving away from a world where we are trying to tell how many kids can read or not into one where we focus on things that are more important than that. But like, I think it's actually really bad. I mean, you know, we we see in all kinds of areas of policy, right? It's like when you create these like states of exception, people who like them try to find reasons to expand them. It now seems like COVID in some form or another is just going to be with us endemically, you know, into the future. So things that initially you said were going to be done like until the end of the pandemic, like the pandemic is maybe never going to end. You just have to sort of decide at some point that vaccines or acquired immunity or whatever else it is, like, is enough, and we're going to move forward on a permanent basis or not. And, you know, we talked about this in No Child Left Behind Time Machine, but it's like there's an ongoing backlash to the idea of, like, trying to measure school performance. And the pandemic has sort of accelerated that on some level, but I think it has somewhat dire implications for for the future because you can't do these interventions unless you do the assessments and you also can't tell which interventions are the good ones unless you do the assessments it's it's sort of hard to like sit in your chair and guess what kind of program is going to help people catch up we can try a few plausible hypotheses but like we would then need to measure them otherwise you really left just throwing kids back on the resources of their parents. You know, I should say, like, I've complained a lot about, you know, uh, my my struggles in life. But it's like my six-year-old is on all his targets and whatever, because he's got helicopter parents, you know, and his teachers made great efforts and, and things like that. But it's like, if it's an incredible priority in your life for your kid to do well in school, you can make sure that happens, like regardless of these kind of breakdowns. But that's not like a way for the system to function in the long haul. Right. I mean, what you said about the state of exception is really important, I think, because there has been something of an explicit conversation along the lines of people say we want to get back to normal, but normal was hurtful for a lot of people in a lot of ways. So as long as we're being intentional in instituting new routines, we should be cognizant of those harms and we should be trying to mitigate them. That has been a limited conversation. There is a much, in any context in which people are debating, do we keep the 2020 to 21 status quo 
Or do we go back to a 19 status quo or do we do something else? Those conversations are, to a first approximation, never happening among people who have had the explicit, like, let's talk about the ways in which normal was harmful to people. Build Back Better as a slogan aside, there's always going to be a certain amount of kind of conceptual slippage where if you think that the prior status quo was bad for totally different reasons than its main proponents, you're still going to be on board with the not going back to it outcome. But it is worth at very least explicitly saying that if you stop doing assessment because of an epidemiological crisis and do not reinstate it for a different reason or do not reinstate it using COVID as a justification, but under circumstances that are not the same as March 2020, that needs to be explicitly acknowledged because otherwise you end up with one of two things. You either end up sending the message to individuals that they are in a constant state of emergency and that they need to act accordingly and that just persists indefinitely, or you create a gap between how individuals are going about living their lives and what the official institutional stance is that makes people lose a certain amount of faith in the responsiveness of those institutions and makes them suspect correctly that they're doing things for their own reasons. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I think one one thing I would add to is like in terms of like this idea of institutional learning loss is like we're not just seeing this with like education policy, but like I mean you, you can imagine like how this would affect public health. Like all the discussion right now about vaccine mandates, it's I mean, I'm worried that like a lot of states are gonna be looking at their old vaccine mandates now and being like, should we even have these? And that has implications for future crises, like outbreaks in schools, like one of the reasons we mandate vaccines in schools is not just because we don't want kids to get sick, but also because outbreaks in schools are really bad and disruptive for the learning environment. So like, it's like these public health policies are in place to make sure kids can learn. And I worry now that in terms, if, if we start having like a broader discussion about vaccine managed, which it seems like we're heading in that direction, we might end up in a situation where like all of a sudden measles is coming back in some school environment and like schools are shutting down and then we're getting like, like not hopefully not a year and a half of learning loss, but like pockets of learning loss where where things are not going well. And it's just it's just a, a, a way that like the, the broader implications are even more dire as this conversation goes on as as all of this becomes more and more polarized. All right, let's take a break, do a little white paper, turn the page. So 
Our paper today is by Kyle Greenberg, Michael Greenstone, Stephen Ryan, and Michael Yankovic. It is called The Heterogeneous Value of a Statistical Life, Evidence from U.S. Army Reenlistment Decisions. So I think on a, on a methods level, something that economists and I'm trying to estimate is like, how much do people value their lives? You can just kind of ask people, like, how much, how much would you pay to not die or something? But, you know, Economists like to get real-world evidence. And so one thing you can often do is look at jobs where jobs that, like, require rare skills tend to pay more than jobs that are kind of generic or anybody can do. But within that realm, like, you can make more money on an Alaska crab fishing boat than working at Arby's. And the reason is that Alaska crab fishing is very, very dangerous. Uh, logging is dangerous. Repairing electrical wires, climbing up those poles is dangerous. And so they try to estimate a sort of implicit market premium that people demand to go do jobs that are likely to get you killed. So this paper looks at one specific case of that, which is the Army was paying reenlistment bonuses to people to um, do another tour in Iraq or Afghanistan. And because military work is dangerous, uh, but how dangerous it is depends a lot on like the actual nature of your job. But the bonuses were not differentiated, I think, in that kind of way. So by looking at sort of reenlistment rates, they are able to show that people in more dangerous military roles were sort of less eager to take the bonuses, and they estimate uh, a value of between 500000 to 900000 in the, the statistical value of, of human life among these reenlisting soldiers. Apparently, this is like a much larger sample, a much more numerically robust sample than you are normally able to do with these things because the military is really big compared to the crab fishing industry. So I think on a narrow technical level, that's like the ball that we moved forward here. I mean, there's also, and I appreciate that while this paper is very in the weeds in terms of, you know, the methodological analysis, there are periods where you can kind of see a bit of frustration breaking through that they've had to engage in this intervention in the literature because they point out that there are lots and lots and lots of contexts in which economists use the, you know, value of statistical life and that often it's assumed to be a constant between people. You know, when you're doing public policy analysis, you just kind of plug in like X number of people times YVSL equals aggregate utility. And they point out quite reasonably that that's not how humans work and that if we actually want to think about how people assess the value of their own lives, we need to acknowledge that they're not all going to be the same and that for, you know, that there is going to be a big difference between people in combat and non-combat roles, that there is going to be just like individual level variation, um, that there is going to be difference more broadly between the military and civilians who are, you know, in circumstances where their kind of estimated value has been assessed are just way, 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 you have to pay them way more to be willing to die than they find in this paper. So I, I think that that's kind of worth pointing out, you know, especially because the order of magnitude finding lends itself to a certain idea of the volunteer military that is tempting, but maybe reductive, which is that, well, if you kind of sign up for this, you know what you're signing up for. And that is to a certain extent borne out by the data, because even people in non-combat roles are more likely to re-up 
given mortality rates than they expected civilians to be from prior literature. But like there is still a reasonable calculation being made about people who have chosen to go into combat positions in particular. And even over time, when mortality rates were higher in Afghanistan and Iraq, the same person would be less likely to take a re-up bonus. Uh, and therefore, the re-up bonuses were going to have to increase. To clarify something you, you mentioned there, I mean, what one of the striking findings of this paper is that the statistical estimate they come up with from this military population is much lower than the standard estimates uh, from looking at civilian samples. Um, and again, that's based on re-enlistments, not, not like people who didn't know what they were getting into. You know, so that's part of the interest here. I honestly found this a bit surprising because, I mean, obviously people have different risk tolerance. I write about this a lot with COVID and drugs and all that stuff. But like, I don't know. I mean, there's like bravery. There's a sense of serving your country. Like there's obviously more that goes into all this and just like how much financially you feel your life is worth. But at the same time, I did not expect it to be like orders of magnitude difference between civilians and soldiers. I guess I should have because I'm a coward. Like I would never even think about enlisting in the army. I, I'd rather live, not die. But to me, it's just striking. Like it, it really puts a lot of the context and like a lot of the conversations we're having, I think around COVID, but other just public health issues in general about like, look, people have really, really different perspectives on what they're willing to do, what risks they're willing to take. And once you understand that, it can maybe help you wrap your head around some of the things you've seen people do in the last year and a half that make you go like, what the hell are you doing? Stop that. Well, that are also shaped by their prior experiences and existing identities, right? Like the question of transition to civilian life. It's not exactly like we can all sit here and say that everyone who chose to reenlist in the army was being offered a choice between reenlisting and a decently paying, totally stable job and home life. And so there is something to be said for both the fact that the military is still a really robust culture making institution that by the time you have been through it, you probably see yourself and your value to the world in a different way. But also for the fact that choices are always being constrained to a certain extent. And to put the like most cynical, least mentally healthy spin on it, if you've been told that what you're good for is getting paid to almost get killed, then that is going to shape your future career decisions. I just think, though, I mean, to Herman's point, like, this has helped inspire further reflections for me on the fact that I think the COVID dialogue among elites has sort of underrated the idea of bravery and courage as a social value, right? That, like, the thing about the military is that this is an environment in which internal to the military, obviously being brave is highly valued. No, not being reckless, right? Military people distinguish between courage and just like indifference to risk, but like they're trying to get you to be brave, right? And society as a whole valorizes military service, right? That that's like part of the whole implicit bargain for how you get people to take these risks is that volunteering for the military is considered a good thing to do. 
right? And if cosmopolitan anti-nationalist liberals quietly think that it actually isn't a good thing to do, they stay very quiet about it, right? Even in these days of like increasingly bold left-wing cultural politics, like you don't see AOC or Rashida Tlaib or anybody saying like volunteering for military service is bad. We're locked in. I'm like, the troops are brave and that is good. In the COVID context, the discourse has been very focused on the idea that cautious behavior is pro-social behavior and that, you know, we are not trying to say that, like, you should be fearful. We're trying to say that you should do the right thing for your country and, you know, uh, cook at home, right? But to normal people, not not everybody, but like a non-trivial segment of the population, like there are restaurants that are struggling, right? Because people are afraid of the virus. And if you personally are in a low-risk category, that to go and get dinner is an act of courage, that other people are afraid to do this and you are going forth. And if you remember in like January, February 2020, when I think progressives were mostly processing fear of COVID as a kind of like quasi-racism, that that was an official narrative, right? Was like, Go forth, right? Like, get your flu shot and, like, live your life and things like that. And there has been a carry forward of that mentality among younger conservative people that then in the vaccine era has become just totally toxic, right? Like, people get built up around the idea that the problem here is that everybody's being chicken shit and I'm being brave. And so now it's like an act of cowardice to get vaccinated. Even though there's no version of refusing to get vaccinated that's like jumping on a grenade and saving your buddies. But like the identity formation that COVID caution is cowardice, I think is very important and hasn't really been, I think, like addressed in a real way that like a lot of people, especially younger, more politically right wing men, really want to be seen as brave in a lot of different circumstances. And if you want to get them to do something, you have to make the thing that you're asking them to do be a brave thing, that that's the kind of applause they are looking for from society. Not to be like, oh, you're such like a good little boy, right? But like, no, like you're going out there, right? And you're taking these risks that like us weenies don't want to do. And, you know, it's it's hard because that's just, like, not the worldview of the kind of people who run public health agencies. It is the worldview of the kind of people who run the military. And, like, they are very good at that, at, like, getting people to do what they want through a certain kind of messaging. And it's just, like, a big country with a lot of different people who have a lot of different attitudes. And it's hard to navigate that. I mean, you're also describing a problem that bravery cultures often run into, right? Which is while the ideal expression of the norm is you are brave so that others do not have to be. And in doing that, you are protecting others. It often turns into you are a better person than those you protect and those who are unwilling to do what you do are barely deserving of your respect 
and not necessarily deserving of like you treating them as equals. And this is something that we see in them in certain strains of the military often, right? That like that there are kind of ideological revanchist strains of the public doesn't understand what we do. They can never understand what we do. They cannot judge us because we are putting ourselves, you know, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall, et cetera. Um, so I, I do think that it's not like this was an unforeseeable problem, but I think that everything you're saying, Matt, could just as easily apply to the decision to get a vaccine before FDA, you know, final approval, right? And so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens this fall with the military's own vaccine mandate and how successful they are in turning this thing that, as we've been saying, is you know, has been true for other vaccines in the military as in other institutions for time immemorial, whether they succeed in messaging this as the kind of collective act and collective sacrifice that their members are, you know, attuned to and can easily adopt or whether there is an internal culture war over this. I think one key distinction to make here, too, in in terms of COVID is it's one thing to be brave and risk your own life. But the thing with COVID, and I think this has just been a big communications failure, is when you're being brave going to that restaurant, you're putting other people at risk too, right? Like if you're carrying the virus, you can get them sick. You can carry that back home, get your family sick, and so on and so forth. And I think that's just been a consistent messaging challenge here where people are thinking like, well, I'm being brave. I'm going to this, I'm supporting this restaurant. I'm blah, blah, blah. But like they're not really thinking that they're getting other people sick because obviously you might not even see that you're getting other people sick ever especially if you don't have people at home that you're also getting sick because they're strangers right and it's just been a big messaging challenge i mean i think you saw a lot of this with like the initial mask conversation where people are like wait does this protect me or does this protect others and there was this kind of like underlying commentary there where it's like if it's just protecting others what do i care about wearing a mask and it's like I don't know. The, the message of like we live in a society and we should be doing things for each other has kind of gotten lost here. And I think especially when you start pushing this up with like I'm being brave by doing this, people can really lose sight of like being brave is crossing a line into being reckless if you're putting other people in danger. And I don't think that has fully seeped through in the, in the public dialogue about all this. What I think has been missing, though, a lot of the time is an ask like – How do you perform supererogatory service in a way that is active, right? So I think that, for example, if we had done human challenge trials for vaccine tests, that we not only would have had vaccines somewhat closer, but we would have had heroic volunteers, right? And, you know, not that many people even would have been picked for such a sample, But like the challenge to anyone who wanted to be boastful about their bravery and their lack of patience for the lockdowns would be like, well, why don't you go volunteer, right? And some people would have volunteered. And of those volunteers, some people would have been chosen. Other people would have been shamed by their lack of courage into behaving like a cautious person, right? And even with with restaurants and things like that, right? It's like, what do you do? What are we asking you to do? If you are a healthy, young person without a lot of family responsibilities who has been furloughed from work or who has extra free time because socializing has been cut down, extra flexibility, like what do we need you to do? How are we mobilizing you for an activity that will be safe 
and pro-social. And look, if you don't want to do it, if you actually just want to stay at home and play video games, like, okay. But like, if you are impatient and bored, if you want to demonstrate your virtue, like, what can you do? Because it's such a bummer for some people, right, to be told what we are asking you to do is literally nothing, right? But then it frames breaking the rules and being daring as this kind of positive, particularly because, like, even in the East Coast, like, the restaurants and stuff weren't closed for all this time. Right. And and weren't closed. And, like, going back to what we were talking about during the main part of the conversation, like, it's not like there was any big mystery as to why restaurants and bars were open. Like, as Herman alluded to, state and local governments were terrified that they were going to lose ginormous amounts of tax revenue in the coming year, you know, and that things like education would have to go underfunded as a result. So it, there was the implication of restaurants and bars remaining open wasn't just providing a livelihood to that industry. It was your state and local governments are trying to stay afloat. Yes, but, you know, it's just like... I think you need to engage with these somewhat irrational pathologies of toxic masculinity rather than just like saying it's toxic and you shouldn't be like that. Like at its best, society is like give people something to do, not just like tell them that like they shouldn't do things and that their whole worldview is wrong and you should instead adopt the values of middle-aged public health professionals. And I think we just saw time and again that it doesn't work, right? That like people did not stop informal socializing in the places that had the strictest regulations. And that the very same people who think everybody should be hyper cautious all the time are anti-authoritarians who don't want to send cops kicking down people's doors and busting up house parties. Like, so if you're relying on everybody's voluntary compliance anyway, it's like you have to give them something to do. You know, I don't know. Hopefully we like won't have dozens more pandemics over the next 30, 40 years. But I'm kind of like worried that we might, that whatever the underlying issues that led to SARS and MERS and now COVID-19 are not going away. And we need to come up with a playbook that is less politically and socially like trying than all of this. And I don't know. I mean, this was supposed to be a paper about the military, but it just it reminded me that in other contexts, like we do count on a subset of the population being willing to take big risks with their life, that that's like an important building block of society. I really like how you frame this, though, because it's like uh, I could already imagine like the Twitter dunks when somebody's like, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm not scared of COVID. And then somebody responds with like, yeah, are you signing up for that humans challenge trial then? And it's like, I mean, it's it's funny, but at the same time, it's like turning that kind of like I think you put a toxic masculinity into something more productive than just like showcasing on Twitter. We could hopefully make better use of people's supposed bravery than like them just throwing caution to the wind in the next pandemic. I do kind of want to rescue masculinity from y'all. Like, I think that there is an extent to which toxic masculinity just means anything that is associated with masculinity because it's all part of the same complex. And like, sure, you know, it's very hard to disentangle the roots. But the toxicity is one brand of this. But it gets back to what I was talking about earlier in the distinction between sacrificing yourself as a way to protect others versus sacrificing yourself because others are weaklings and you're strong. And I think that there's a both and approach here, right? I get that you meet people where they are and you get focus groups and marketing consultants to figure out the most appealing way to frame 
the desired public policy goal in terms of the values that people want to cultivate in themselves. But it's also worth kind of working on disentangling the toxicity from the notion of individual sacrifice for the collective good, for example, because there's no reason why that needs to lend itself to others are weak and you are strong, other than, you know, all of the historical and structural ones. Yes. No, I mean... (laughs) I don't want to put this. This is like too late for a treatise. It's, I think, like how toxic certain impulses are. Just, it's a dynamic interaction between like people's values and identities and what society is saying or doing. And I think we just kind of like parked this in a very toxic place during COVID. And it's like possible to try to redirect a little bit of like desire to distinguish yourself as less fearful than the average person. Going back to the paper, right? I mean, the title is Heterogeneous Value of a Statistical Life, i.e. like people disagree, right, about how risk averse they are, right? So no matter what happens, like some people, there's 300 million Americans, right? So tons of people are going to be like two standard deviations more invested in call it bravery or call it recklessness than the average person. So the question in like a big social crisis is like, what do you do with those people? Right. Like, do you put them under lock and key? And like, I think no. Right. Like no place was was actually doing that. Do you just pretend they don't exist? I think that's kind of where we landed here and it didn't work out that well. Or do you try to come up with something to like ask them to do that would be constructive where you're like, yeah, like we could use some people who are like much more indifferent to their personal well-being than the average person. We need someone to go do this dangerous thing, right? Whether that's like, we need people to repair telephone poles, right? It's not just the military. And so you can make a premium wage doing that because it's important for society that somebody climb up those poles and fix those lines, even though it's much more dangerous than comparable Uh, sorts of occupations because like you're high up there's all this fucking electricity up there it seems terrifying to me uh but like that's valuable so we ask people we're like this is a job you can do we will pay you extra money for it right and that's like how we make things work by taking advantage of natural human differences in temperament and i think we didn't really get there on the pandemic uh if you're a coward you know podcasting might be a good line of work for you so thanks everybody (laughs) for listening Thanks to uh, Ness Smith-Savadoff, our, our new producer here. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors uh, for, you know, keeping our valued statistical human lives uh, up and running. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. 
Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. 